All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we'll be in Matthew chapter 9, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 9. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for getting us here. Um, some of us had a great week so far. Some of us have not had such a great week. Either way, we're here to meet with you and to let you minister to us and to, to learn from you, but also just we need the comforter. We need your Holy Spirit to just come alongside tonight and teach us, but also refresh us and heal us and encourage us and strengthen us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's just what Jesus does here in chapter 9. He just is continuing his love for the sheep. Um, at the cross, Jesus is completely alone. And he knows that's what it's going to be. And he knows that's how it's going to be. He's not ignorant of how this is all going to go down. In fact, he's the only one that really knows how it's all going to go down. Um, he tries to tell his guys, the disciples and the, and the ladies that are ministering with him and alongside of him and helping him and supporting him and um, to let them know what to expect, but they're not hearing exactly what's going to hit. Um, and they're all going to be surprised by it. But if there's anybody in the group that knows what's going down, Jesus does. And yet still, knowing he's going to be rejected, knowing that he's going to be left alone, forsaken by everybody, including all of his closest disciples, he still continues to minister in love for all of them because he understands. In the Old Testament, we're warned, and, and we know that God knows that we're but dust, you know. And he doesn't think of it as, like, how I think of it, I am a dirtbag, you know. That's not how my Father in Heaven looks at me. He just understands my frailty is what he means. He understands my beginnings. He understands where I am compared to where he is. And as this good shepherd Jesus shows up on earth, demonstrating God's love for the world to see, he continually shows them, and he's above that. He's above the pettiness of, I know you're all going to forsake me. I know that you don't all uh, understand what's happening. I know you don't all get it. He doesn't look down on them for that. He continues to minister to them as he's the good shepherd and they are the sheep, and that is his Beautiful role that he accepts wholeheartedly and understands their, their heart and where they are right now. And so we've seen him minister to people and cast demons out and um, do amazing things for the people. And even Matthew tonight gets his opportunity to share his little moment with Jesus when Jesus calls him to follow him. And it's very short, you know. But that's because Matthew's humbled by what's happened to him, as we all are. And so we get to see this neat movement. He, he left off last week with several uh, people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee telling him, I want you to go away. You've cast out demons out of these two men that have tormented us for years, but in the process, we also lost about 2,000 head of swine or pigs. And so would you please move on? So verse 1 of chapter 9 begins with this. So he got into the boat and crossed over, and he came to his own city, willing, willing to be rejected, willing to do good and to not respond in anger, not to respond with, truly, if you ever wanted to see an example of turning the other cheek, this is it. What do you mean, leave? What I, I would have said, no, I'm not leaving. There's a bunch of more demons I want to cast out. I mean, that's just kind of how we are sometimes. But Jesus gets in the boat and says, Okay, 
he knows, of course, that he doesn't need to be there. These two guys are going to go off witnessing to these 10 cities on that side of the, he says, no, don't, you, you can't stop this, but I will go to the other side, but there's no way you can, you can blow this candle out. You know, this is a flame that's going to burn. So he got into the boat and crossed over and came to his own city. Then behold, they, everybody, the gang brought to him paralytic, a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your, in your, in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. This is the same story of the four that the four friends bring the paralytic and they, they kind of rip the roof off of the house. And cause the, the Jesus is in this house. And of course, everybody wants to see Jesus. He had a way about him, which I don't have, but want to have. I desire that he had such a way of bringing conviction to everybody around him, but in such a way that it drew them to him. You know, there's a way that Jesus was and the way he carried himself and the way he spoke that convicted everybody around them because the Pharisees are offended. Everybody's offended by what he says. But there, there's, a, there's a, such a way that the people that wanted to repent just, they just were magnetized. They, he's a magnet. They just came to him. And so he's in this house, and he's doing what he does, teaching and, and just being the love of God to all those around him. And, and the place is packed. And so the guys that want to get this paralytic into him to get him, you know, he, Jesus needs to heal this guy. He's our friend. They get on top of the roof. They rip the roof off. They drop him down on ropes. And Jesus is like, what are you, you know? And seeing their faith, knowing that this needs to happen, these guys aren't leaving until this happens, says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, the guys holding the ropes at the time are probably like, no, that's, that's not what we're here for, you know? We want him to walk. But he leaves it. He leaves it there because he's doing a work. And this is something we all need to remember. He's doing a work much bigger than the paralytic. He's working on the hearts of everybody in the room all at the same time. Because everybody's going, okay, that's not what we thought we were going to see. That was unexpected. He's been healing people, blind people, deaf people. He's going to continue to do that. People that are mute, demons getting cast out of people. We, we, We expected this guy to get up and walk like everything else, but Jesus steps it up here. This is a moment where he steps in and says, I'm going to forgive you for your sins. Be of good cheer. That's the real problem. That's the real need for this man who's a paralytic is that his sins be forgiven and that he know that in his heart. If he's a paralytic the rest of his life, knowing that his sins are forgiven from God, that's a much greater burden lifted off him than the actual ability to be mobile again. The physical makes no difference compared to the spiritual and the heart that needs to be touched by God. The whole nation of Israel has this mindset right here, right here. They want the Messiah to come and remove the Roman yoke. As the Romans have moved into their country, 
taken over. They're subservient to this Roman rule. They hate it. They want them gone. They want to be delivered. They want a deliverer from this oppression. They want things to get righted again so that they're making money again, so that they have their own vine and their own, and their own fig tree and their own home again, their own land. They want that all back the way it was. And they thought Jesus was going to do that. And that's what the whole Palm Sunday thing is about when they're, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now from the Roman yoke. And Jesus walks in. And of course, I've said this, taught this many times, but this is their mentality. He walks into the city and doesn't go and remove the Romans. He goes into the house of the Lord and begins to flip tables, which is not what they expected. Because the greater need was them to be spiritually closer to God, not to be physically released from the oppression of the Romans. It's the same thing. The friends really wanted their paralytic friend to walk again, and I understand that, and I think we'd all agree that's a great thing to happen. But Jesus, seeing the greater need, touches the need that he sees in front of him, and that's, that's a problem I have sometimes with God. I've got certain things I want God to do for me, and those are my prayers. Okay, God, step one, you know, and then step two and step three, and thank you for listening, and I'll be waiting. And he does like step 92 and does some weird things, and I'm like, that's, that's not what I asked for. But that was the need that I had. And, of course, hindsight's 2020. As you move forward in your life, you realize you look back and say, oh, oh. Boy, I'm sure glad you didn't answer my prayer one, two, and three. And you did what I said. I wonder how many people have prayed for relationships that they started off with and they're in a fight and I just love him so much and I just think he's the world's greatest and I just hope that he, oh God, change his heart. And he, his heart doesn't get changed and he walks away and he never comes back again. And then God brings you this other bozo into your life. Well, he'll do. He's fine and ends up being the love of your life. You know. Mm. Thank you, God, for not answering prayer one and touching the need and ministering to me right where I needed. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. At once, some of the scribes and the ferrets, some of the scribes. And the scribes, when we talk about scribes, those are the guys that would, they're like, uh, do you ever see that cartoon where you got the big pit bull and the tiny little chihuahua and he's going, hey, boss, hey, boss, you know, jumping around him all that. Maybe you don't. If you're young, you don't know what that is. That's who these scribes are. They're the, they're the little chihuahuas running around the Pharisees. So you see what he did? See what he did? He's, we're for you, Pharisees. You know, they're just kind of those guys. So they're sitting here watching Jesus say, you're forgiven of your sins. And the scribes are like, no, you can't do that. Only God can do that. And that was really the point, guys. You're right. Only God can forgive sins. I'm stepping it up. Healing apparently is too easy but forgiving of sins. And so the scribes are upset with him for saying this. He blasphemes. They say it in their hearts. They're not saying it out loud. But since Jesus is God come in the flesh, knowing their thoughts, please underline that. If anybody ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God come in the flesh, knowing their thoughts, hello? He looks them right in the eye and says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, these guys haven't said anything out loud, and all of a sudden they're the focus. Everybody's been looking at the paralytic. Oh, he's not going to walk? Bummer. Oh, his sins are forgiven? Okay. Nobody's excited about that. 
It was the greater need, but nobody cares. Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Of course, to say your sins are forgiven you, because there's no evidence. You won't know that till you die. How do you prove that what he said actually happened? Forgiveness of sins. Mm. Well, you don't know. Rise up and walk. Well, then we can see that. You know, shriveled hand, getting made whole again. Can see that. Blind guy seeing. We can see that. We like to see, you know. He says, so which is easier to say? Well, it's easier to say that. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, which is their problem. You don't have power on earth to sin. How about I tell this guy to get up and walk? Why don't you get up and walk? And he does. Which proves that the first happened. You can't see it, but it happened. And that's faith. Jesus has done a lot of things to prove to us in the physical world that he occupied for 33 years that he is capable of doing the miraculous and everything he said that he wanted to happen happened, even his death on the cross. So that means I can take to the bank everything he said that hasn't happened or that I haven't seen. That's the point. My faith is built on what Christ has done because I've seen him walk and forgive people and, and, and give us that assurance of salvation. He's made a, a place for us in heaven for those who trust in him. He's going to come back and take me home. None of that's happened, but I can believe it as if it's happened because of all the things he's done. He's proven it. That you may know that I'm able to forgive sins. I'm going to heal this guy right in front of you. And all the people were so excited. Now, granted, they're excited that the guy got up and walked. I don't know that the forgiveness of sins actually settled in, that they understood what happened there. But nevertheless, he proved it. Matthew, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Not a friend in the world, by the way. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. That's it. That's all we get for Matthew's conversion, Matthew's call. It's that simple. It's that simple. Matthew being humble, writing this book, uh, letting this is how, you know, this, is, this is the time in Jesus' ministry where I got saved, and he gives it a verse. and doesn't go into it much further than that. Not thinking I should expound upon this a little bit more. You know, what did this look like? What were you doing? What was your first reaction? How did you feel when Jesus said that? How did you know that it was really, it's very simple for Matthew because as he's grown older in the Lord, as he's matured to the point where he's actually writing a biography on the ministry of Jesus, he said it really was that simple. He looked at me and he said, follow him. And I got up and followed him. There isn't anything more to it than that. Our walk with Jesus is that simple. When you boil it down, I can give you a testimony and talk about all the events leading up to JD's conversion and what happened the night of my conversion and who was there in the room and how it happened and how I was born again and I was never the same, but also kind of the same and God kind of brought me along in the Lord. And I could tell you all that, but it's as simple as he said, I want you to today follow me and I followed him. There's a moment in time where every single person has to just choose, I hear you. 
plain as day, and I'm not going to go anywhere else but follow you from the rest of my life. This is it. I'm doing what you tell me to do from now on. My life is no longer my own. It's you. I mean, you say all those words, but it's as simple as follow me. Yes, I will. And, and I did it. I didn't just say it. Matthew says, he told me to follow him, and I arose and followed him. I mean, literally leaving his work, leaving everything he was doing that day, Jesus is passing by, says, I want you to follow me, Matthew. And he gets up and just starts following him. It's that simple. Matthew's life has never been the same. Nor would he ever go back. Nor does he regret not being the tax collector he used to be, you know. Gosh, I wish I was hated by everybody again, you know. If you have not made that move, that physical, I'm getting up to follow Jesus, it's that simple, and it is up to you to do. And he's calling everybody, follow me. And I hope tonight's the night of salvation for you, to be born again, to make that decision to no longer walk in your own strength or you're in your own ways and your own ideas, and to get up and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. This has gotten me, everybody hating me. But to follow Jesus, well, they're not going to be popular but you will be on God's side. And that's everything. Very simple. Verse 10. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, remember those are the bulldogs and the scribes are the chihuahuas, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice they didn't say that to Jesus himself. They don't like talking to him. Every time they talk to him, they just look like, well, buffoons. They just cannot have a conversation with him without him turning it on them and them looking like fools. So they pick on the disciples, and Jesus knows that about these guys. In fact, at one point, he's away praying or up or distant, and these guys have been sent off, and they're having a hard time, and the Pharisees are giving them a hard time. And Jesus, you can feel it and see it in the words. You, you can't, you don't know what happened, but it's like he steps in between them and says, what are you saying to my guys? And I really like those moments because there are times as a disciple of the Lord, as I follow Jesus, that I don't know what I'm talking about a lot of times, or sometimes I, I don't know if they answer. And I feel like I'm on my heels, you know, as someone's arguing with me or someone's, you know, just confronting me about it. And I'm usually pretty good, but there are days when you feel like you're getting pushed and you're off balance. It's nice to remember those times when Jesus says, you did a really nice, that's good. I'm going to step in here. Back off, JD, today, you know. Yeah, get him, you know, that's, or her, or whoever it may be. <laughs> I don't have it in me today, you know. Or I'm not on, I'm not there. I'm not prayed up. I'm not whatever. Whatever it is, I'm, I'm not capable today or not, I'm not doing what I normally do. And he steps in and you can, you can see this. These Pharisees are like circling sharks trying to pick off his disciples. And so don't count it funny or strange when these things happen to you. As a follower of Jesus, you're like, well, why am I in the spotlight today? What, you know, who didn't eat their Wheaties today? And they're all on me. You know, why aren't they on? Why am I get the focus? How come he's sitting with tax collectors and sinners? Because they're drawn to him. Never make the mistake, and I think we all understand this, but never make the mistake to think that Jesus has become a sinner or a tax collector to be like them so that they're comfortable around him. They were comfortable around him in his total and beautiful holiness. 
purity, the bright light and salt that Jesus was on the earth, these guys, not being that, were still drawn to him. To them, to these guys, he was the fragrance of life. They live in the stench of death. They can feel it all around them, the oppression, the hatred, the anger, all the things that go along with sin and tax collecting. It's funny how those are synonymous in Scripture. And they are not because the IRS is evil, (laughs) but because these guys, the tax collectors, were known for corruption. They were known to not just take what they were supposed to be taking, but also pocket much of it. So they just were not popular folks. Nevertheless, the tax collectors and the sinners came to Christ to, to be changed. And Jesus knows this. He's a welcoming physician he's going to describe himself as here in a minute. He's a physician that you can trust, a physician that has a bedside manner that everybody in this room wishes they had, you know. He was able to talk about their sickness and the things that are killing them and the disease that they had, which is sin, in such a way that it gave them hope and that he had a cure for them and that they can become whole again. Why do you sit down? See, the Pharisees, who were the religious rulers of the day, had gotten to the place where they thought it was more important for the appearance of holiness because they could not, they did not have it in their own. They did not have holiness. But if they removed themselves from sinners and tax collectors and they pulled their coats in tight as they walked down the street so that none of their garments touched the filthy people around them, that there was this appearance of, oh, they're so holy, you know, genuflect. Oh, you know, no. No. What they needed was to be out ministering to people, saying, come, come to synagogue. Come back to the temple. Bring your sacrifice. Get right with God. They were supposed to be evangelizing in a sense. They're supposed to be calling people back. They're supposed to be doing John the Baptist's job. That's why John the Baptist was even called, was because these guys weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing as leaders. Come, come, come. Why does he eat with them? And so Jesus heard that, verse 12. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, that hit them hard because you telling a Pharisee to go learn something, that's all those guys did. They were the learned They were the professors of Bibleology, you know. That's who they were. Nobody had better answers than them. Nobody was more righteous than them. They were the top. They were the pinnacle, the top. And Jesus looks at them, why don't you guys go learn something? How about mercy? You remember mercy? M-E-R, you know, you could just see him. Go and learn something. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, please That's what it means to sit down and eat with tax collectors and sinners is for the purpose of helping the sick. And he calls them sick, these sinners, out of their sickness. It is a sickness. It's not okay. He doesn't condone it. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't say it's okay. I'm here to help you get out of that because it's killing you. It's a cancer in your life. It needs to be cut out. You need to remove it. You need to let me touch you. It's a hard conversation to have. A doctor looking at someone and saying, you have stage four, but we've got a plan. And we think we can beat this thing. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, says, I have the cure. I know I can beat this thing. But you have to put yourself into my care. You have to let me do this. 
I'm the great physician. You cannot heal yourself. This is something beyond you. It's in every cell. It's completely infected your entire life. And I need to come in and do some work and you need to let me. And he has that tough conversation with us, but in such a way that you know he's not going to hurt you. Jesus has a way of telling us about our sin in such a way that I want to give it to him. I, I agree. I mean, I've gotten used to it. I've used, I'm used to the limp. I'm used to not seeing. I'm used to whatever it is that this cancer has touched in our life, spiritually speaking. I'm used to not being liked by certain people. I'm used to uh, having a reputation like this. And God says, I want to take all that away from you. I want to give you a hope. And these guys are drawn to that. And the Pharisees are jealous. Why don't you guys learn what mercy is? Now, the cross-references that I gave you guys, it kind of goes here and in the next section, so bear with me. I'm trying to figure out where I want to read these. I, I got them. There's only three that we're going to have tonight, but they're kind of, mm, I don't know where to put them exactly. So I'm going to read one to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It goes along with the next section, but it goes along with this section too. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The prophet, minor prophet, Hosea, in the Old Testament, is saying, I'm tired of you guys bringing sacrifices for your sins. I'd rather you just not sin. And when you come to me, I'd rather just give mercy. I'm not interested in the, in the blood of bulls and goats, although that's necessary, and that's according to the law. He's not saying that that's not what you're supposed to do. He's saying, I just wish it wouldn't be so cavalier about it. But you're out there looking at your livestock saying, I could spare a few cows. I think I'll go sin. No, you missed the point. The death of the animals, the blood that had to be offered for your sins is supposed to prevent you from sinning because you can't stand the idea of an innocent animal losing its life for your stupidity and choices, you know? And so he says this to them through the prophet. I wish, I, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I'd rather you know me better. I'd rather you walk closely with me. I'd rather you just get rid of your sin than boast about all the sacrifices you've offered to me for your sin. And so that's why he tells these Pharisees, I, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I'd rather them just return to me in their heart. David, King David, great man after God's own heart, the next king, um, or the best king, actually, um, right after Saul was king, um, failed, just flat out failed in many ways in his life. And he writes a beautiful psalm that describes that failure and says, I know that the, the blood of bulls and goats, that's not what you want from me, but what you want from me is a broken and contrite heart. This is Old Testament stuff. He had no knowledge of Jesus' teachings or New Testament, anything. None of the book was written. All he had was the law, and yet he knew God in such a way that that is all that you require of me is a broken and contrite heart, and I want to give that to you more than the blood of bulls and goats. Of course, he'll do that, but that doesn't do any good to give the blood of bulls and goats and do the sacrifice if you don't match it up with the broken and contrite heart. The change. I don't ever want to do that again. And David knew that about his God, about his Father in heaven. And Jesus is trying to teach that to all of them. I, I, you, you can swear on a stack of Bibles, you're never going to do it again. I'd just rather you be broken and contrite. Let's just call that 
Let's just call that forgiveness. Let's just call that, you know? Now let's get right back together like we were before and have that fellowship like we did before. And so that's what he tries to explain to them. So right after that, then the disciples of John, who are these guys? John the Baptist's disciples, right? They're still following John. John the Baptist came first. That's Jesus' cousin, six months older. And he's baptizing people, and he's kind of got wild hair and eating locusts and wild honey and camel's hair. And people are just coming out of the cities to the Jordan to be baptized by him, which is symbolic of repentance, getting prepared for the Messiah. He went to make this a straight way for Jesus. So everybody's coming to him ready, broken and contrite in heart. And the baptism represents that. And then Jesus comes and they're supposed to go follow Jesus and be disciples of Jesus. John still got disciples. So the disciples of John came to him, Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, I think we're clear on who the Pharisees are, right? And who the scribes are. We've discussed that. When you, as a follower of God, start aligning yourself with those guys, that should be a red flag to you. How come we and the Pharisees, we and the Pharisees, didn't your guy that you're following, John, call them a brood of vipers and ask them who called them out to be Isn't he chewing them out every time they show up because they're out there just to, and you're lining yourself up with them? See, I think I know more about myself and where I stand with God on who my enemies are and who my friends are. Who's against me? Who hates what's happening here tonight at Calvary Chapel? It's good to have certain haters. It is. It's good to have certain people in your life that don't understand why you love Jesus. Now, you want them to know him and you want them to get saved, but I can pretty much tell how my walk is going with the Lord by who is not happy with the fact that I'm walking with the Lord. Now, these guys have all of a sudden found themselves up against the people that Jesus is replacing, Pharisees, and they line themselves up and say, how come we fast like the Pharisees and you don't? Well, maybe you ought to follow Jesus, you John folk, and not the Pharisees. So he says to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine in old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into, into, into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. It's an interesting combination of metaphors he throws at us here, because most of us don't understand any of that. First of all, we don't repair our clothes anymore for the most part. Some of you do. I do. I sew. Well, you're one in 10 million that do still. You know, I remember getting patches in my jeans, and I was so happy when my mom finally figured out to put them on the inside of the jeans and not on the outside. Looked like a, a hobo, you know, with these patches on the outside. He'd go to school with these giant iron-on patches, and the kids are like looking at you. I'm like, I know. I said, Mom, you know, you can put those on the inside, and then you can't really see them. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> Come on, lady, you know. But the, the cloth needs to be, you know, pre-shrunk so that when you put it on there and you run it through the washing machine, that new patch doesn't shrink up and then tear all the way around, you know, because you obviously have a weak spot there. And that's what he's getting at there. 
And then the old wineskin, well, we don't have a lot of that, but you, you, you take a new wineskin, which is an animal skin, a piece of leather, and it's, 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 uh, it's hollow, and you fill it with new wine. And as it ferments, it gets gases and everything, and it begins to expand. And as long as you have new leather, it's going to expand. But eventually, as it comes to its actual great vintage or its perfect timing, you know, it kind of gets hard. And if you were to take that hard and pour out that beautiful wine that's finely fermented just the way it's supposed to be and put another batch in there, well, it'll try to expand again while the leather's all ruined. It'll just crack and break and you lose everything. Okay, so that's, that's what those two metaphors are. What does that have to do with fasting? First of all, just because you fast doesn't make you holier than anybody else, which is what they thought. How come we fast and you don't? Trying to one-up Jesus. Well, that's ridiculous. And he says, how can they fast right now? They're celebrating with me. See, John the Baptist, like we said, was calling people to a place of repentance, a place of brokenness, but a place of brokenness for healing and, and new life in Christ. And, and now the disciples have that. They've gone through John's baptism. Great. We're all broken and, and sorrowful, but we've been healed but we've been forgiven, but we're followers of the Messiah now. And so there's a, there's a rejoicing, like a wedding feast. And like, that's why, that's why he calls him bridegroom. It's like, you're at a wedding. Who, who decides to fast at a wedding? You know, oh, that's cheat day. You know, I mean, <laughs> cake and smorgasbord or whatever. Let's go for it. And that's what he's getting at. Why are you doing that? They're, they're with me now, you know. Now, there'll be a time when I'm taken away. And of course, he's foreshadowing his crucifixion. And that'll be a time that, yeah, they're not going to eat. They're going to be worked up when they see me go. But that's, a t that's that time. But that's, that time's not now. He's trying to teach them something. Now, we're in an interesting time right now. I know, it's, I know it's Lent for a lot of people or a lot of denominations, and it's just not one of those things we do. Um, doesn't make any difference. It's between you and the Lord, what you do with Lent. Um, and, and it's meant to be a time of fasting, a time where you take something out of your life that's dear to you or that's important to you somewhat. I mean, it's, it's getting pretty pretty lame. I'm going to stop eating chocolate. Oh, wow. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, whatever. <laughs> I do that every other week on my diet. So good for you, you know, every other week because I go back. Okay. Uh, that's, and, and I don't, I, the idea behind it is every time I want to have chocolate or have that desire for it, I don't, I have that time with the Lord instead. Okay. So I, I, make, I make a joke about it, but the idea is to make a physical reminder that I need to spend more time with the Lord, you know, and that's, that's the idea behind fasting. When I fast, I don't eat, and when I'm hungry, I take that time and fill myself with spiritual food is the idea of actual biblical fasting, okay? Um, here's the thing. Um, Jesus says in Micah 6, 8, well, let's do Isaiah, sorry guys, Isaiah 58, 1 through 12. It's a long cross-reference, but it's my longest, okay? 12 verses. But Isaiah the prophet comes up to the nation of Israel who had gotten into the habit of offering up the sacrifices for their sin and not considering the loss of life or the blood that was actually atoning for their sin. They didn't consider it anymore, like we can do in the New Testament. Well, I can always plead the blood of Jesus over my sin, and I'll be okay. Yes, but no, there's no repentance there. You really need to understand that your sin is, cause, is, is the reason Christ died. So there needs to be some brokenness. So he stops them for a minute. And he talks to them about this problem they have in their spiritual walk. Lift up your voice like a trumpet, Isaiah tells the nation of Israel. And 
Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. So there's a switch there. there. The question to him is, didn't you see me fasting last week? How come you didn't answer my prayers? You know? I mean, we were, really, we were really down and out. I thought you'd notice, God. And so his response is, in fact, in the day of the fasting, you found pleasure. You let everybody know what you're doing. I have a problem with that. I'm all for fasting if you want, but it needs to be between you and the Lord. Why are you telling everybody about it? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't have chocolate. I'm fasting for God. You have to say it that way, God, G-A-W-D, God. Because it makes you feel more holy. That's exactly what these guys were saying. How come we and the, and the Pharisees, we fast for God, you know? No. If it's going to be that way, he says, if you're going to fast, if you're going to afflict your souls... Then wash your face, anoint yourself with oil, and go out there like nothing's going on. Make sure nobody knows because it's supposed to be between you and the Lord, but they didn't. So he says, you guys find pleasure on the day that you fast and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it, is it a fast that I have chosen, God says? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? That's what they do. They go to the middle of the square. They shake out their cloth. Does everybody see me? You know, and they just look all sullen and they go, oh, God. You know, they do this big theatrical whatever. He says, is this what I've called you to do? It's pretty bold. God's just calling them out on this. Verse 6 is the most important. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? Here's what I want you to fast from. Why don't you loose the bonds of wickedness? Why don't you undo the heavy burdens? To let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, and the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repair of the breach, the restore of the streets to dwell in. That's a whole lot more than getting rid of chocolate, you know? Why don't you just get rid of the wickedness in your life? Let's, let's do this. Let's fast from sin, not for 40 days, but like forever. Why don't we just stop sinning? That'd be a great start. That's our first fast tonight. So Calvary Chapel, we're going to fast forever 
from sin. Ready? Now. We start now. Then you start seeing people's needs around you. Begin to minister to them. Begin to take care of them. Quit turning away from the needs around you. Begin to minister to the people that you see that God brings into your life. Not anybody else's, but your life. And begin to minister to them and take care of them. And that's when, that's when the gospel, the good news gets spread. That's when lives get changed. That's when, the, that's when nations get healed. That's when families are restored. That's when life gets better. That's when crime goes down. You want to stop crime? Get people saved. Tell them about Jesus. And so this is beautiful. It's one of my favorite sections of Scripture. It's so convicting. I mean, not because you needed to hear it, but because I need to read it. Because you forget how simple it is. That's great. Uh, oh, no chocolate. That's really that's a great sacrifice. How about this instead? Oh, that makes a lot more sense. That makes a lot more sense. So he tells them all this. Why don't you do this? Verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him. And remember, any time an angel or any other lower creature receives worship, they stop the person immediately and say, don't worship me, worship God. Jesus never stopped anybody from worshipping him because he was God come in the flesh. So this guy worships him saying, my daughter has just died, not sick, dead. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him and so did his disciples. Yeah, they wanted to see. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And that woman was made well from that hour. What happened there? I mean, that's like, a, that's like a miracle inside of a miracle. Yeah, I'm going to go raise this girl from the dead. Whoa, yep, yeah, you're healed too. And he moves on. That's amazing. That's faith. Your faith, daughter, has made you well. She had that point of contact. If I can just touch Jesus' garment, another gospel says that he felt power go out of him. Which means he didn't know what was going on. I mean, he's God come in the flesh. He probably had a clue, but for the most part, he didn't. He feels his power go out of him. He turns around and looks and says, good job. You know, your faith has made you well. You reached out to touch me. And she was. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Always how it's going to be. There's always going to be critics, whether it's a scribe, whether it's John's disciples, or whether it's just these mourners who are paid to do and make this noise and this ruckus to let everybody know she's, she's really missed, you know, now that she's dead. That's the idea behind it. And he comes in and says, she's not dead. Get out of the way. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside... He went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land, I bet. But I get, here's what it doesn't tell me, but I, I can almost bank on it, that the critics, the ridiculers, didn't stop ridiculing. They just don't. What do you mean she's not dead? He's dead as dead, dead. You know, what an idiot, this Jesus. Oh, she's alive? Well, well she, you could just see him. Explain it away, whatever. For some people, there are just going to be people in our lives that just don't want to see fruit 
in your life. They don't want to see you succeed. They don't want you to do well. They're waiting for you to fall. They've got their megaphones ready to cheer as soon as you stumble as a Christian, especially those if you're a brand new believer and you've got old believers or old unbelievers in your life still, they just haven't dropped off the vine yet or they haven't left your life. They're waiting for you to show up at the party. They're waiting for you to fall back into their life and look at you and say, I knew you'd be back. There are just people like that that will not be happy for you. You've got to focus on the Lord. You've got to focus on Jesus. You've got to keep walking towards him, towards him and with him. They ridiculed him. Whatever. I'm still going to do it. There's nothing to do with that. Don't let those folks stop you. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. Now, this is because he doesn't want to go to the cross yet. It's not time. I will go to the cross, but not yet. There are many other things I need to do. So don't tell anybody about this, or they're going to find me sooner than I want them to. There's a time for this to happen. So don't tell anybody. But <laughs> when they departed, they spread the news about him in all, the country, in all that country. What a bunch of naughty blind guys or sighted guys now. Can you blame them, though? Could you? What happened to you? Nothing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I could see. It's no big deal. <laughs> I mean, I get it. And I'm sure Jesus did too. But <laughs> don't tell anybody. What? Okay. As they went out, behold, they brought him or brought to him a man mute and demon possessed. And, and the mutism is because of the demon. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the rulers of the demons. It's just always those guys. He's probably a demon himself, you know. What a uh, frustrating. But that doesn't stop Jesus from ministering. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Everybody he came in contact with. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Because they were supposed to have shepherds. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious rulers of the day were supposed to be caring for the people, helping them. Encouraging them in their walk with the Lord. Telling them how to get close to God. Not telling them they can't get close to God. But no, here's the way. That was their only job was to tell them, no, it's two turtle doves and a sheep for that. And this over here, it's going to take a bull. You shouldn't have gone out Friday. you know. And bring it in. You're going to need to do this. But to bring people in. But they weren't. And Jesus sees them all scattered. And that's not why he set this system up. It was meant for them to have someone to take care of them. In fact, when he establishes the nation of Israel and puts the Levites throughout the land so that there were shepherds all over the place looking out for the people, they'd stop doing their job. They were more concerned about how they looked, their appearance, their well-being, and had no concern for the people anymore. Sad. And that's how he saw it. He had compassion. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray 
the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And next week, that's what he does. Sends out his guys. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Your word is beautiful. Your heart is beautiful. This gospel is beautiful. You touched Matthew in such a way that he wanted everybody to know. Thank you for this tonight. Times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And being in your presence tonight in your word is just a beautiful thing for us. And we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to follow you, Lord, to fast from sin, to fast from turning a blind eye to those in need around us, to fast from our own selfish hearts and to see people, to have compassion on them like you did, to reach out to them, to minister to them, to help them in any way that we're capable of. What you ever, whatever you've gifted us to do, Lord, help us to use those gifts. We may not be able to help everybody, but we'll help the ones we can. God, help us to do that. Bless these folks as they go tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good night, guys. If you need prayer before you go, please come on up. Be glad to pray with you.